0: We um, we left off um, at the end of verse 19, and, and just to do a, a brief review to to kind of get your heads back in gear and and uh, kind of put aside the fact that Canada won the hockey game and focus in on this again um, and the curling, yeah, and and a few other medals today as well, um, but. Uh, we're, we're, working, we're working our way through chapter 5, um, on our way to the end of chapter 8, and we, we kind of saw that the book of Romans is a very systematic, very logical book, building upon precept upon precept. And Paul started off in uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, all the way to around verse, uh, th- uh, chapter 3 and verse 20, uh, really detailing the problem of mankind. And we looked at the, the summary of that in verse uh, chapter 3 and verse 9 onward about none being righteous, none being good, none seeking after God, all mankind being useless. And that's you know, kind of the summary of the state of man apart from Jesus, apart from God. And then he transitioned in chapter 4 into leading them towards salvation. And we, we didn't touch on that too much, but we saw the major theme of, of chapter 4 is just salvation by faith. And he uses Abraham and David as illustrations. Which is really powerful when you consider that one is before the law and one's after the law. But yet both are saved by faith. And so then he transitions into chapter 5. And cha- chapter 5 is really now the beginning of the now what. The now what do we do? How do we begin to live this Christian life? And you know, for some people, uh, at least for myself, I-, I didn't have any kind of practical understanding of the relevancy of Jesus. I remember Malcolm Smith told a story one time he was overseas and he was uh, helping different local pastors and he, uh, he came to one pastor and the pastor preached a, you know, a strong fire, fire and brimstone type message leading people to salvation and He had lots of people to come up and they 'd pray and, and, and he was all excited and and uh, he came up to Malcolm Smith afterwards and said, well, Malcolm, my, my problem is that these people, they come on Sunday and they, they receive the gospel, but then on Monday, they're back in their Buddhist temples. And, uh, and Malcolm thought, okay, well, let's, let's find out a little bit. And so he's hearing this, this message, and that was the only message being preached week after week after week. And then he decided, well, let me go check out these Buddhist temples and see what they're learning there. And on on Monday, uh, and throughout the week really, when they're in the Buddhist temples, they're receiving what they would consider to be more practical teaching about how to live today. And so what Malcolm was discovering was that the, the preacher was giving them a salvation gospel, your past is dealt with, your future is secure, but he wasn't addressing the now. And so the now, they were going somewhere else. They're going back to their Buddhist temples to try to figure out, well, now what do I do? And really the problem was that they were receiving an incomplete gospel. And so the gospel doesn't end in Romans chapter 4. Therefore, in light of all this, therefore having been justified by faith, therefore having peace with God, therefore we can exalt in the hope and the glory of God, now how do we live? And so that's what he's transitioning to in, in, in 5, 6, 7, and 8. Um, but what we saw in chapter 5 at the beginning is he said that, you know, we glory about all these wonderful things, right? Peace with God, being justified, standing in His grace, uh, in His presence, and the wonderful thing of tribulations. Wasn't that exciting? Right? Woohoo! Well, why is he rejoice over that? Why is he excited? Not about the tribulations. I mean, if you get excited about pain, that's not healthy. Okay, come see me, we do counseling, we can help you. Uh, you know, To be happy about pain is not a healthy thing. But he's exalting in the tribulations because he knows that, A, that the tribulations are doing a work in him. They're producing or bringing about, really is a better translation, bringing out the life of Christ. It's training him. It's teaching him to trust Jesus. That's one side of it. But the other side of it is that he knows that those tribulations are not God's punishment of him. That God's not angry with him. Not, God's not out to get him. And He showed that because He went to show how much God loves us. That He was, you know, while we are an enemy of God, He died for us. How many times have you heard of a person dying for their enemy? I mean, how many Americans laid down their lives for Osama bin Laden? You wouldn't hear that. And yet, that's the illustration. That's what Jesus has done for you and I. And more than that, all the wrath is poured out on that cross. And we saw that wrath isn't just the high degree, high level of anger of God, but even the low level of anger. That being saved from Him being perturbed or upset or irritated or annoyed with us. All of that has been dealt with on the cross. There is no anger that God has towards you and I. Only His love. And so now when those tribulations are coming, much more, he says in in verse 10, much more shall we be saved through those trials and tribulations by His life. By Jesus now living his life in and through us. And he's, he's kind of touching on that, and he'll come back to that later on. But he was just giving us a bit of a sample of that. And then, beginning in verse 12, he starts comparing and contrasting about being in Adam and being in Christ. And so we kind of looked at that last night, about this contrast, about how in Adam, uh, death reigned. We were condemned, and we were made sinners. And that was true of all of us. That wasn't true because of what we did. That was simply true because of who we're in. But equally true, now that we're in Christ, now as a result of our faith being transporting us into Jesus Christ, now that we're in Him, life reigns. And we're no longer condemned, but we're justified, made righteous. We're accepted by God. And now we're saints. We're someone holy and righteous and approved. And we see this now. And and we kind of look briefly at this formula that we had For the Christian life, and again, I'm not big on formulas, but this idea of understanding the abundance of grace and the abundance of the gift of righteousness. When we combine those two aspects, we will begin to reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Understanding that grace is more than just unconditional love or unconditional forgiveness, it's more than just that unmerited favor of God. Grace is also the power to live the Christian life. It's it's Jesus' strength, it's His empowering presence living His life through us, doing what we cannot do on our own. That's grace. And the gift of righteousness is that knowledge that I'm approved with God, that I'm okay with God, that that I'm in His good books, that not only does He love me, He actually likes me. And combining those two together, now when I'm faced with a trial, I don't have to try and do it in my own strength, I can trust in Jesus living in me, but even if I fail, I know I'm still okay. I'm not doing it to try to gain your favor and gain your acceptance because I'm loved by Jesus. And and how can you add to that? I mean, think about it. How do you add something to make infinity bigger? You can't. And yet, infinity is exactly what God's love is for you. It's infinite. It's immense. You can't begin to measure. It. So how do we add to the love that God has for you tonight. We can't, but neither are we supposed to. We don't need to. He is enough. He's enough. And so that's kind of where we left things off in verse 19, and so we're going to begin tonight then, continuing on, starting verse 20, but before we start, why don't we open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us to come back here again tonight and to look into your word and you know, it's it's amazing that you would choose to leave your word with us, that you would choose to um, have people like Paul and Peter and the other writers of the Old and New Testament to write down a message that you have for you, and for us, for everyone here. And and Father, I pray that each one of us now would set aside the day, set aside all the events and all the things that might distract us now from what you want to say to us. And I know there are tremendous things you want to reveal to us tonight. There's tremendous things that you want to um, have us see. Maybe see it afresh for the first time, or, or see it again, even though we've heard it many times before. We're just trusting you, Father, to do your work and look forward to whatever it is you have in store. In your name we pray, Amen. Now. We mentioned it briefly in verses thirteen and fourteen of chapter five, where Paul talked about how that you know the law before the law came, sin and death still reigned, and that the law was only in there a temporary time, but sin and death is the issue and you know or sorry death life and death is the issue facing mankind and and that's a really important point that we need to understand because I think what's happened is we've reduced our gospel to just getting your sins forgiven and going to heaven. And that was never really what the gospel was about. I mean, you search the gospels and Jesus never said, I've come to forgive your sins so you can go to heaven one day. That wasn't what he was talking about. Instead, he says, I, might, I have come that you might have life. There's a, there's a couple great verses. I, I really love these verses. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Depending on your translation, it will say, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I tell you the truth. You know, if someone comes up to you and says, Can I be honest with you? What does that tell you about the rest of the time they're talking? <laughs> A little suspect, right? Is that the case here? Jesus is saying, Okay, can I be honest with you? Okay, we'll trust this verse, but the other verse Jesus is talking. I don't know. Is that the case? Yeah, he's saying this is important, right? I'm going to tell you something really, really important, so pay attention is what he's saying. So he begins, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but goes to heaven. from death. But pass from death and into life. The issue facing mankind is life and death. Man has death, and he's in need of life. And so he's saying, this is important, pay attention, this is what needs to happen. Very next verse, what does it begin with? <laughs> truly, truly. Okay, if you weren't paying attention the first time, if your head was still thinking about the Olympics, or you know what you had for dinner, or what you're going to do tomorrow, pay attention again. This is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, and the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will be forgiven. Is that what it says? No, it's not in there. It's instead, those who hear will live. It's life and death. And yet, I think we've missed the point. We've missed that. And so... He was trying to make that point I think, back in, in verses 13 and 14 that death still ran but there's no law and if there's no law there's no sin. right? You can't break the law if there's no law to break. I mean ten years ago was it illegal to drive and talk on your cell phone? Ten years ago. no it wasn't there was no law at the time, right? Only a couple years ago did they introduce that law and now it's become illegal. Well, so he was saying no sin, nor no law, no sin. But does that mean everyone was saved between Adam and and Moses? No. Death still reigned because death was in the world. So he introduced this idea of the law and so he comes back to it really briefly here in verse 20 and he says the law came in so the transgression would increase. Now according to this verse right here, why did God add the law? Think about that for a second.
1: Paul says when the law said you shall not... um, and
0: i all the time. Yeah, so we can get there in chapter seven, but but looking at this verse here, the law. Now, who added the law? The law? Who added the law? the law? God did, right? The Law gives strength to sin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at and, and just so we're clear, what is the law? When when we read the law here, what are we referring to? The Mosaic Law. I mean, it's, I think it's it's broader than that. It's any kind of law-based system. But in you know specifically what Paul was talking about here, the Mosaic Law, the law came, God added the law not to control sin. That's not what it says. I remember in another course one time, I put this verse up on the screen and I asked that question, what is, what is the law come? Why did God add the law? And it, you know, so the transgression would increase. And the person saw the verse on the screen and immediately thought that I had some kind of funky paraphrase translation. One that clearly is evil. So he grabs his Bible and he starts flipping through his Bible, and I'm watching him, and he's astonished when he reads in his own Bible exactly what I had on the screen. Because it's not a paraphrase. This is what Paul's saying. God added the law so that for this express purpose, it wasn't just a, a, a side effect. It was the goal. The goal of the law was not to control sin, not to limit sin or reduce sin. I mean, why did we bring in the law that says, don't talk on your phone and eat an English muffin and shave your legs while putting on your makeup while driving? Why did we add that law? To stop stop people from doing it, right? (laughs) Because it's not a good idea, just in case you didn't know. That's not a good idea. So that's why we add the law. We add laws so you don't do that. Why did God add the law? To make the transgression, to make sin not smaller, but bigger.
1: So people could see they can't do it on their own if they need Christ.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and he's going to explain that more in chapter 7, but he's just kind of teasing them a little bit here, saying that the transgression would increase. Now, to me, that, that says a couple things about God's attitude towards sin. And the number one thing is, he's not afraid of it. He's not afraid of sin. And that, that I think, is different than how we approach sin. Now, just so we're clear, does God hate sin? Yeah, but he's not afraid of it. I think we in the church, we tend to be afraid of sin. We're worried, oh sin might happen. You know, yeah, it might. And God's not afraid of it. You know why? Here's the other thing. He's got an answer for it. He's not scared of it. He doesn't want it, but he's willing for it to increase. Why? Because he's got an answer. Because when sin increased. Grace abounded all the more. Really, the proper way to translate this verse would be: where sin increased, grace super abounded all the more. That you know, you get a little bit of sin, and what happens to the grace? Way up here, it's so much bigger, so much more powerful. You simply can't out God. You can't out sin His grace. So, that in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, despite what Adam did, and despite what you and I do, God's grace is so much bigger, so much more powerful, and it's always there. That's the nature, that's the heart of grace. I want to play a video for you right now. I think this is a, an, an interesting video to really drive home this aspect of, of the grace of God. So, Andre, I'm going to ask you just to turn the lights off here.
1: Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, His crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. It's always about me. That's Grace Peter.
0: We we have a gospel that tends to be self-centered about us. And we lose sight of Jesus. And this idea that, you know, where sin increases, we start thinking, uh oh. You know, there's a limit now to God's grace. There's got to be a limit, and that's because we're so focused on ourselves. But with God, where grace, where sin abounds, grace super abounds all the more. It does not matter what you've done, who you've done it with, how many times you've done it, where you did it. His grace will abound all the more. That's the nature of grace. So, what's the question? What becomes the great fear? if that's what's being taught. I mean, if you tell people that you can't out-sin God's grace, what's the fear? What will people do? They'll go and sin, right? That's the great fear that people have. And Paul, I think he knows that's the question that they're going to ask because that's what he's going to answer. Shall we continue in sin in order that grace might abound? I mean, maybe you look at this and say, well, if I want more grace, what should I do? I should sin more, and then I get more grace. That's logical, right? And and that's been one of the biggest charges that people make towards myself and others who teach this about grace. Well, you're, you're teaching license. You're giving them permission to sin. Which, by the way, I've never known anyone who needed permission to sin. Right? I mean, did you ever know anyone who needed permission to sin? No, they'll just do it. But that's the fear, is that we're encouraging people to sin. And yet, that's the exact same thing that Paul's going to have to deal with as well. Because in verse 1, he says, What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? That's interesting to me. And Martin Lloyd Jones made the comment that when you share the gospel and somebody makes this accusation towards you in response to the gospel that you're sharing, he says, That's a pretty good sign that you're sharing the gospel. Let's think about it in reverse. If you share the gospel and nobody ever asks this question, or nobody ever has this thought, wait a minute, are you saying this? Then maybe you're not sharing the right gospel. Maybe what you're sharing is one of more performance, where it's centered on you more than centered in on Jesus. Now, I'm not saying they have to ask that question so you to guarantee you're sharing the gospel. But if, if that's a question that no one would ever ask, in in the response to your gospel. Maybe it's because you're not sharing the gospel. Maybe you haven't really revealed to them the depth and the immense love and grace that God has for them. Maybe it's been reduced to a simple matter of what they need to do in order to keep God happy with them. Either going to church, giving, serving, reading their Bible, praying, and all the other religious performances that we attach to the gospel.
1: I find it interesting, just to go back to, to, to the previous slide, when the law is there to... Uh, that, to that the sin would increase. In the, in the garden, God gave Adam only one command. And then in Exodus chapter 19, verse um, 8... All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In chapter 20, he gave 10 commandments. Mm -hmm. I found it interesting. So, just let's just one command you can't keep. Now you have 10
0: to keep. Well, really, there's 613 he gave. Right? And, um, yeah. So, he asked the question, and and this is typical to Paul. He asked the question, and he's going to answer it. And that's the the, the, the approach he's taken here. So what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. Absolutely not. The old King James, God forbid. So he's, he's denying it. That's not the answer. And, and if that's how you've understood grace, well then you haven't understood grace. Nothing wrong with asking the question, but if this is what you take away from it, then that's not what grace is. And, you know, you look at today and I do see some people who teach grace and this is their followers. This is what they're hearing from it. And as teachers, it's our role then to correct them and say, well, listen, that's not what we're saying. Grace isn't a license to sin. Grace is something much more. And that's what he's going to address now in chapter six here. And and that's really important to understand because chapter six is Paul answering this question. Should we continue in sin now that we're under grace. And there's two parts to it. One is, in order to get more grace, and he's going to answer that in verses uh, starting in verse 2 to 13, he's going to answer that. And then, in verse 14 and 15, he's going to ask another question of, well, now that we're not under a law, but under grace, if there's no consequences of the law, should we continue to sin that way? And so he's going to answer that in verse 16 to 23 of this chapter. So chapter 6, really, you have to keep that in mind, because if you lose sight of the context of what Paul's answering, you might get stuck in the weeds. But if we keep in the back of our mind, he's always answering the question, should we continue in sin? No, why not? And here's why, and that's what he's trying to address. So in verse 2, he gives the whole answer. This is it. And typical to Paul, gives the answer and then explains the answer. So verse 2 is the answer. And then verse 3 to uh, verse 10, 11 even, he's explaining the answer. So may it, be that how should we, uh, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Alright, let's read a couple different translations here. This is the New American Standard up here. What does the King James say? Verse 2. Start after the God forbid part. Let's leave the may it never be aside. In chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 2. Yep. God forbid, how shall
1: we that are dead to sin live any longer in it?
0: Okay, that's good. So, how shall we who are dead to sin? Okay, that's a little bit different. What does the NIV say? We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Okay. We died to sin. How shall we live in it any longer? Uh, Slightly different phrases... Uh, the one I like the most is actually the NIV here. The NIV, I think, is the most true to the original manuscript. In, in the Greek, the Greek is a language where order doesn't matter. In, in English, the order of the words matters. So if I have Bobby hits Matt, we know Bobby is the hitter and Matt is the hitty, right? based on word order. But in the Greek... They don't have such a thing. They, they tie the who's the hitter or who's the hitee, who's the direct object and indirect object for you grammar geeks, they tie that into the words themselves. So you could, you could order the words any way you want, but still say the same thing. So you could still have Matt hit Bobby, but then Bobby be the hitter of Matt. It sounds a little weird in our English, but that's because order matters in English. But in Greek and some other languages, the order doesn't matter. Because they, the way the, the words are, are structured, that tells you who's the direct object and who's the indirect object. So the only thing that then matters in language, in, in the Greek language, is importance. That you structure things in a way where you want to say the most important thing at the beginning, and then down the line. So what Paul does, he says, may it never be, or God forbid... And then the first word he gives is we. That's why I like the NIV. Because he's emphasizing we. That's what's so important here. And, and nothing wrong necessarily with the New American Standard, how shall we? It's just that Paul is really driving home the point that the question of should we continue in sin, the answer is based on who we are. Based on this new person, we. Who we are now, we who have died to sin. Now, the reason I don't like the King James one, I like that one the least, is it says, we who are dead to sin. It almost implies that there's something you need to do. That have you yet died? Well, here's something you need to go and do. You need to now become dead to sin. And that's not what Paul's doing. He's not giving us a command to do something. He's instead telling us what's already happened. He's simply revealing or giving us information. And the most important information is... Based on we, who we are. We who have died to sin, why would we still live in it? I mean that's that's really the question. Why would we go and do something that's against who we are now? And remember the question is answered should we continue in sin? The answer is no, because it's now that idea is contrary to who we really are. And again, that's so different, I think, from the mentality that too often we have in our churches. Too often, mentality is that if we don't control people, if we don't give them the rules and the laws, then what are they going to do? Go and sin. If we don't make people come to church, then they won't come to church. If we don't make them give, then they won't give. If we don't make them stay out of the brothels and the bars and so forth, then that's where they're gonna go. So we need to give them the rules to prevent them from doing because if doing the, the sin, because if we ever left them to their own devices, those wicked, wicked people, what would they do? They'd go and sin. And it's just it's the law that's keeping them back. And what Paul's saying, it isn't that. It isn't the rules that prevent us, it's we. It's who we are. That we have died to sin. Now, please understand, what died to sin doesn't mean, is it doesn't mean, A, that sin died. It doesn't mean that we never sin. It simply means that we've died to sin. And he's going to now explain that in the following verses. And so, verse 3 begins, Or do you not know? And I love that. I mean, here is the inspired Word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, begins off with this phrase, Or do you not know? Have you not heard? Has nobody told you that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Now, we have to understand the word baptized a little bit. We have that now as as part of our English vernacular, the word baptized, but the reality is that the, the word baptize is actually a transliteration, which means that they just took the Greek word here, which is baptizo, and rather than translating the word, they created the word. I kind of like that idea. Maybe I should transliterate my own language or something. No one would understand me, but then I wouldn't mispronounce words anymore. But, <clears throat> but what they did is, so they didn't translate the word baptizo, and, and I'm not sure exactly why they did that, I mean, one story I heard—I don't know how true it is—but um, back in, in the 16, uh, 1600s, when King James uh, commissioned the Anglican Church, the Church of England, to uh, translate the, the Bible into English, he he took 70 or so uh, bishops or, or priests and so forth, scholars, to begin to translate the Bible. And when it came to this word "baptizo," ba- "baptizo" literally means to be placed into. And at the time, the Church of England, when they would baptize somebody, they would use sprinkling. You know, they just kind of dabble or drip some water over people. That was their religious ceremony. Well, if they translate this word baptizo to be immersed or placed into, that would kind of go counter or against how the Church of England practices the religious ritual of baptism. So, rather than translating it, they just transliterated it. So, it was kind of to, to conceal what it kind of means. But really, all the word baptizo means is to be immersed into, or placed into. That's really why baptism is a great picture of this. Please understand, he's not talking about water baptism. Whether you're dunked, sprinkled, shot with a water pistol, none of that matters. What really matters is what that is trying to point to. And what it's trying to point to is what God's done. So Paul says, do you not know, have you not heard, that when you are placed into Christ... And he explained the ramifications of that in chapter 5. Reign in life, made righteous, justified saints, and so forth. That you were also baptized, placed into, and immersed into what? His death. His death. So that more than that, Jesus died on that cross, but who died with Him? We did. We did. Please understand that whoever you're in, what happens to them happens to you. It's, it's such a, a simple concept, but it's such a profound concept. Let me, let me give you a quick illustration. I still got uh, a card here from Luba. who's not here tonight, but um, I'm going to put Luba here, a friend of mine, I'm going to put her where? In the book, right? And so if I take the book and I hit Abe with the book, I know, what did Luba do? What did Luba do? Can you believe it? Don't blame me. It's Luba, right? She's in the book. And whatever the book does, guess what Luba does? Same thing, right? If we mail the book to China, where does Luba go? If we burn the book, what do we do to Luba? That will teach her for hitting you, right? And then if we put it in a bucket of water, what do we do to Luba? We baptize her, get her saved. Amen, right? Because whatever's happening to the book is happening to Luba because Luba's where? In the book. That's the theology of in. And that's what he was trying to express in chapter 5. Because we're in Adam. What happened to Adam happened to us. But now that we've been transferred into Christ, what happened to Christ happened to us. Well, don't you know? Don't you realize? That part of that was also his death. So that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just him dying for us, but we died with him. Think of that song, Um, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord. Have you heard that song before? I won't sing it, don't worry. Not that cruel. It's an interesting song, right? Were You There When They Crucified My Lord. Uh, At first glance, you look at that song and you think, what a ridiculous song. I mean, do I I really look that bad? Do I look like I'm 2,000 years old? Because that's how long ago Jesus died. So why would you ever ask that question? Were you there? When they crucified my Lord? Well, the obvious answer would be, no, I wasn't. I wasn't alive back then. But upon further review, well, were you there? Yeah, you were. And you weren't one of the witnesses. You weren't one of the soldiers. You weren't with John. You were with who? Jesus. You were with Jesus on that cross. So let's let's see if we can understand. We have a, a diagram, or a couple diagrams in your notes there. And these are some diagrams you might be familiar with, we use in many different other courses that we teach here. But just a quick review, man is comprised of three unique parts. He's comprised of a spirit, a soul, and a body. The spirit is, in essence, who he is. It's his very nature, it's the core of who he is. You and I, created in the image of God, are spiritual beings. I mean, if you think about it, God being spirit, if he made man in his own image, by definition... You and I are spirit beings. So we we are spirit beings. We have a soul, which is comprised of your mind, your emotions, and your will, your personality. And we reside and we live in a body. And this is who we are. Now, Romans 5.12 says, Through the one man's transgression, through Adam's sin, this thing called sin, which he's going to explain a lot more in chapter 7, Paul does, But we'll just put it here for now, this thing we're going to call indwelling sin, it resides in the body here. And so the result of the sin now, we have this thing called sin in in our body, and not only that, but man is dominated by this thing called the flesh. That's what this giant F represents. Man is dominated by this life in the flesh. And so what the flesh begins to do is it begins to uh, cause all kinds of havoc along with indwelling sin, all kinds of havoc... With our soul. I mean, it's causing problems in our body. We talked about that death reigned over us, right? So, physically, our body is deteriorating. But in our mind, it begins to attack our mind with all kinds of uh, faulty concepts in, in our mind. Maybe it's low self worth. Maybe it's the belief that I'm useless, that I'm no good all kinds of things in my mind, all kinds of faulty thinking. Maybe even it has this idea that God's against me. So all these faulty thinking, or thinking thinking, as Bill Gillen liked to call it, begins to happen in our mind because of the domination of sin and death. Well, with that now, my emotions begin to, to go all haywire. So I begin to feel things such as shame. It was the first thing Adam and Eve felt when they, when they sinned. They begin to feel shame and they need to cover up. Or maybe I begin to feel fear. Or insecure. Or anxious. I mean, the degree to which you feel anxious is the degree to which you're trying to control things. And you realize you're not in control. Hence all the anxiety and the fear. And so our emotions are having all kinds of problems. And in our will, our will is bound because in our will, we're slaves to this thing called sin. So, we have all kinds of problems in our soul. And then in our body, the body or in the spirit, sorry, is what we refer to as an old man spirit. This spirit is dead to God. So, you can see this is, this is the problem here. And again, when, when Jesus is coming and saying, you know, the, the dead, the spiritually dead will hear my voice in order that they will... Live. It isn't about just forgiving this person's sins. The sins are going to be the byproduct of this person. I mean, can we expect anything but sins from this person? No. You know, sometimes I think we forget that. Sometimes we look at unbelievers and we're surprised by their sins. Really? I'm not surprised one bit. Because they're dominated by it. And so this person now is in desperate need of life. So now let's get the guy saved. Let's understand what God does in terms of the salvation process. And what He does, and what Paul was saying, is don't you know? Have you not heard that more than just Jesus dying for their sins, God put this old man, this dead spirit—not that he was a uh, you know dead like this wall is dead, but separated without the life of God, this almost zombie-like spirit, He put Him in Christ. He put Him on the cross. So that when Jesus died, who died with Him? So in other words, He takes out this old man. He got rid of him. And He did that in order that He could create and form a whole new person. He's going to explain this now going on in the verses ahead. But this is what salvation was. It was in order to give us a brand new man. Now based on this new man, with the life of Christ, it could begin to now infiltrate our soul and body. Well, one of the first things that happens is, as we'll see when we get to verse 6, no longer is our will bound to sin. And so that's been changed. And with that change, what can begin to happen in my mind? all the faulty thinking can begin to change. I can begin to discover what a proper self-worth is. I can begin to discover am I of what value am I, or who I am good to, and, and what's God's attitude towards me. And my emotions can begin to heal as well. And so instead of having all the, the, the emotions that sin and death and Satan have begun to, to try to toy with me, I can begin to heal. I can begin to be made whole. And that's what salvation is. And so what Paul's saying is, don't you know? You're not who you used to be. Have you not heard? Has nobody told you? And I find it interesting because in my, in my role as, as, as a counselor, I ask many people, many Christians, what happened to them on the cross? And I've asked that question well over a hundred times. And the answers I get are, well, Jesus died for me and and that's where I was forgiven. And I said, good, what else? Then they begin to scramble a little bit and they say, well, he he was buried. I go, okay, that's good, we'll add that, that's fine. What else? Now they're really scrambling, so they bring in the resurrection. Good, what else? Uh, He was stabbed in the side, okay, now we're really reaching, what else you got? What happened to you on that cross? Well, I don't know. Only one person that I've asked that to has responded, that's where I died. Only one person out of a hundred. That's why I find it amazing that Paul asked the question, do you not know? Because the reality is most Christians don't know. And because they don't know, then they don't know that they're different. They don't know the new we. Because if you don't know you died, who do you think you still are? The old man. And what does the old man want to do? He wants to sin. Hence the fear, if you tell that person who still thinks of the old man that they're under grace, they're going to think they're going to go and sin. But the answer should be, why we don't sin is because you don't want to. That's simply it. You don't want to and nor do you have to anymore. And that's a whole different kind of answer. Look what he says, verse 4. So after talking about being included in his death, verse 4, therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death. I mean, he adds this phrase, baptism into death, to tie it into Jesus' death. Right? So there's no mistaking it that 2,000 years ago when Christ was crucified on that cross, you and I were crucified with him. And not only that, we've been buried with him. So that when Christ was buried, what happened to you and I? We are buried with them. Now think about that. What does, what does burial represent? Separation. When you bury somebody, what are you saying about that person? I mean, in our, in our world today, you can't even legally bury somebody for something like two or three days after they die. Because they've had occasions where people have died and then come back to life. And that's really you know, embarrassing if you're about to bury somebody. So they, they make sure you don't bury them until they know that they're not coming back to life. And that's hence the reason you need to wait two or three days. So our Catholic friends, they have what's called a wake. I don't know why, but I think they called it a wake to see if the guy wakes up. And if he doesn't wake up, then they know he's dead. And so when you bury somebody what are you saying to them? They're not, waking up. They're not waking up. Goodbye. Right? You're gone and you're not coming back. Well that's interesting because what does what does that mean God's saying about your old man? If he buries him what's God saying to your old man? Goodbye. Goodbye. You're not coming back. And yet, I hear so many Christians say, that my old man's come back to life again. Think about that. If the old man comes back to life again, who's the one that raised him? I mean, did you raise your old man from the grave? Because if you did, then I didn't realize you had the power to raise the dead. But do we have the power to raise the dead in and of ourselves? No. So who's the only one that can raise the dead? God. Well, is God, think about it, is God going to raise your old man from the grave when he went to such lengths to put him there in the first place? No. Not at all. Here's the other problem. If he does come back to life, and you've got to put him to death again, because I've heard that, you need to die daily. Well, if that's the case, if you and I need to put him to death again, then guess who has to die again as well? Jesus. Because your death was with Jesus. Well, how many times is Jesus going to die? Once. It's all done. What Paul's saying here is, again, do you not know? He's reporting the facts. That's why, again, the King James in here, we who are dead, implies there's something you and I need to do. And the reality is, there's nothing left for us to do. This is what Jesus has done. What's left is is for us to enter into it, and he's going to express that when we get to verse eleven here. But he's wanting us to know that that we've been buried with him, included with him, so that old person, that old man who you used to be, is now gone. and And what's great about it is it doesn't end with a death and a burial; it goes on because so that it goes on in verse four. So that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life more than just dying with Christ, more than just being buried with Him, there's resurrection life. Isn't that interesting? Um, somebody pointed out to me that in the, in the first century church, they talked a lot about Jesus being alive. Have you heard that He's alive? Have you heard he's been He's alive? That was the message that they were portray- conveying to people about Jesus. Think about what we do. We convey a message that says, have you not heard that Jesus died? That Jesus died for you. Well, we emphasize the death, but they were emphasizing life. And that is far more powerful than His death. As great and wonderful as His death was, the life is so much more. That's what Romans 5.10 said, right? If we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son... Next two words, much more. Something even greater, we shall be saved by His life. His life. And so what ends up happening now, Jesus was raised, so were we, in order that we could now have new life, to be new creations. We talked about that last night in 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Therefore, if anyone's in Christ they're a new creation, the old has passed away. When do we use that terminology, passed away? What are we talking about when somebody's died? Behold, the new has come. So you and I have become new creations as a result. I love, here's a quote I want to share with you, a quote from a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned earlier. He was a, a, a pastor or a, a preacher uh, over in England, at Westminster Chapel. And he had a great quote on this idea of our death with Christ. He says this, The old man, the person who was crucified with him, that's the man that I was in Adam. That is the man that has died once and forever. I don't need to keep dying, he's saying. It happened one time and it continues. This is to me one of the most comforting and assuring and glorious aspects of our faith. We are never called on to crucify our old man. How many people have heard this idea that you need to die to self? Nowhere in Scripture does God ask you to die to self. In fact, later on in the book of Romans, in, in chapter 14, I think it is, he says, nobody can die to self. I mean think about it. How was Jesus killed by crucifixion, right? I thought about that one day and it occurred to me that crucifixion is the only way that you cannot do you cannot commit suicide by, right? You can shoot yourself, you can hang yourself, you can stab yourself, you can poison yourself, you can throw yourself off a bridge in front of a car, a train, drown yourself, you can do all kinds of things to yourself, but you cannot crucify yourself. I mean, think about it. You get one hand in, get your feet in, and then what do you do? Throw the hammer up and hope you get lucky? I mean, it just doesn't work. You simply cannot crucify yourself. And yet, that was the method by which God chose for his son to die. I think he's telling us a message. You cannot die to self. Nor is he asking you to die to self. We're going to see in a moment in in verse 6 he's telling us self died. It's not calling us to do something, it's already happened. So he says, We are never called on to crucify our old men. Why? Because it's already happened, it's already done. The old man was crucified with Christ on the cross. But not to realize this, not to know this, is to allow the devil to fool you and to delude you. Again, if you don't know you died, who will you think you are? Still that same old person. So all those thoughts in your mind about who you are, the low self-worth, the not good enough, the one who's never measuring up to others, the one who's rejected, who's unloved or unlovable, or the one who has to perform to get people to approve of them, you're still thinking that's who you are. Forgiven, yes. Going to heaven, yes. But I'm still the same old me. So when I'm faced with situations, how will I live? Like that same person I think I am. And I, I allow the devil to fool me and to delude me into living like who I think I am. Even though that's not who I am. So what you and I are called upon to do, he goes on to say, is to cease to live as if we're still an Adam. Well, how do we do that? He says, understand that the old man is no longer there. The only way to stop living as if you were there is to realize that you're not there. If you are a Christian, the man you used to be is gone out of existence. He has no reality at all. The person who you used to be is dead and buried. If we but so, Instead, you are now in Christ. If we but saw this as we should, we'd really begin to live as Christians. We would all hold up our heads. We would defy sin and Satan and we would rejoice in Christ as we ought. Again, he's answering the question, should we continue in sin? And the answer is no. Why? Because you don't have to. You're now someone new. You're now someone different. Let's keep going. Verse five. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. I mean, what he's doing is he's expanding on the thought he had here in the end of verse four in terms of walking in newness of life. So should we continue in sin? No. We get to walk and live in a different way. Why? Because if we're united with Him in His death, we shall also be like Him or united with Him in His resurrection. So, again, verse 5 is going to be one of those answers, one of those verses where He just gives an an entire piece of information and now He's going to explain that. Verse 6 and 7 is going to explain the death part and then 8, 9, and 10 is going to explain the life part. So, let's kind of break that down. So, if we've been united with Him in the likeness of His death, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Great verse. Powerful verse. Again, starting with this word knowing. This is something you and I, we need to know. Now the old self. Now the King James says the old man. That's, that's the best, uh, translation. And I think the word man there is used to kind of connect us back to Adam. I mean, that's what Adam means. It literally means man. And so, this idea of who you were in Adam, who you were when you arrived here on planet Earth, that person was crucified. Not in being crucified, was crucified. And the the term here in the Greek is what's called the aoris verb, which is essentially a singular action with complete results. So it isn't something that needs to happen. It isn't something that's in the process of happening. It's a one-time event that that took place and we was crucified with Him. Same time, same place. And the with Him makes sure that we know that it's something that's done in the past. Now, this is what boggles people's minds, I think. They think, well, how did I die before I was born? Or how did I die even before I accepted Christ? Does that mean I, I, you know, when I arrived here on planet Earth, I arrived here already dead, uh, died with Christ? Well, that's not quite it. Because the problem with that is we limit God to time. And if you think about time, I mean, let's make a timeline out here. You know, Over here, we've got the creation of the world. And then we got Adam and Eve's sin. And a little bit later on, we got Noah's flood. And a little bit later on, we got Abraham. And a little bit later on, we got Moses. And then we got David. And then we have Jesus showing up and his death. And then a little bit further down the road, you show up. And then you get saved. And then we keep moving on to eternity. Well, looking at this timeline, where's God? Is He in the timeline? No. No. He's bigger than time. He made the thing, for goodness sake, right? So, He's not bound by time. So, the best way I can explain is that moment where you made the best decision in your entire life, when you received that wonderful gift of salvation, that you placed your faith in Him rather than your own works and your own self, what God does is He takes you out out of that moment, out of Adam, comes back to the cross, places you in Christ, crucifies you, buries you, raises you up, and then comes back and inserts you back into the present. Now, would that take a miracle? Do you know anyone in the miracle business other than Max? That's Princess Bride for all you movie buffs out there. Anyways, um, wow. Um, <laughs> guess I'm the only unholy person here who watches movies. Um, <clears throat> But um, it would take a miracle. But that's what He does. I mean, it's, it's a little odd. I'll give you that. But think about it. As Christians, do we believe any odd things? Do we believe that God spoke through a donkey? That's a little odd to me. Do we believe that God came as a man? That's a little odd to me. Do we believe that He died and went to hell. That's odd to me. Explain that one. And then he rose again, and then some 40 days later, he kind of floated up into heaven. Do you believe that one? That's a little odd to me. But is it any less true? No. I mean, the Trinity, three unique people that are one, who wants to explain that one? But I know it's true. And so it isn't so much something that we can necessarily have to wrap our minds around for it to become true. Paul is simply saying, don't you know, or knowing this. These are the facts. That the old person, the old man, who you were, was, past tense, done deal, crucified with Christ. Why? In order that. Here's the reason. That our body of sin might be done away with. Um, The King James Version, they have here, in order that the body of sin might be destroyed, which would be similar to done away with. Whereas the NIV Version has that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Now, they're all slightly different, similar, but slightly different. Let's understand, body of sin... I think that the King James and the New American Standard, they thought body of sin was your old self. So the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, that old self, was done away with, was destroyed. Well, that kind of makes sense. That kind of works. But the NIV people, they came up with something else. I think they thought body of sin was simply a body of sin. Or, more specifically, that the body of sin here is speaking of that indwelling sin. Remember, we placed that on that diagram a, little, a few moments ago? That sin that dwells in our body. That's what I think Paul and the NIV people, and translated this way, that this thing called sin that's in my body, it didn't die. Right? It wasn't sin that died, it was self that died. But because sin died, it's now rendered powerless. And if you look at the word there, rendered powerless is actually the best translation for that word. So if you think about it, let's follow the the, the logic here. So Paul's saying, knowing our old man, our old self was crucified. Why? So that indwelling sin, this sin that's in my body, would lose its control and dominion over me. It would be powerless over me. Why? So that I would no longer be its slave. I mean, think of it this way. If, if there's a, a slave and a master, the best way to set that slave free so he never has to obey that master ever again is to kill him, right? I mean, it sounds harsh, but that's the reality of it. I mean, if you have a slave, he dies in his sleep, master gets up and there's no breakfast. So he starts calling out for the slave. Slave, come make me my breakfast. What's that slave going to do? Is he going to come running? Why not? He's dead. Master kicks down the door, starts shaking the slave. What does the slave do? Nothing. Why? He's dead. So in essence, that master has lost its control, lost his power over that slave the moment the slave died. And that's what he's talking about. Now, having a dead slave for the slave isn't very good because he's now dead. The good news is it doesn't end there. As we'll see, he's going to go on to life, a resurrection life, but he's no longer that same old person. Now he's someone new, he's someone different. No longer under the dominion, no longer under the bondage of sin. Because look what he says in verse 7, For he who's died is freed from sin. This would be an interesting question. Go
1: ahead. Well, I found it easier to understand this concept when I realized in Genesis... God created time, and God and God closes out time uh, in Revelation. So, God, God created time, so here we are. We're passing through this yeah. dimension of time.
0: Yeah. And, uh, What's interesting in verse 7 here, he says, He who's died is freed from sin. Ask this question with your Christian friends. Are you freed from sin? What do you think the typical answer would be? No. Why are they Why are they giving that answer? Because they still sin, and what they hear is you say if you're freed from sin, that means you never sin. That's not what Paul's talking about here, because the reality is how many of us are freed from sin. Raise your hand if you're freed from sin. <laughs> according to this verse I am but I don't I don't know if I buy it right well the reality is you are because he who's died and who's died well everyone in Christ and because you're in Christ you've died and therefore you're freed from sin it doesn't mean you're freed from sinning it doesn't mean you never sin what it means is that you're freed from the dominion and the control and the power of sin It means you no longer have to sin. Remember, he's answering the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is no, because we're no longer under the dominion of it. We're no longer under the power and control and authority of it. Instead, we now have a choice to live differently. So it's not that you will live a sinless life, but as you begin to discover what's happened, and who God is to you, and who you are in God, then you will begin to sin less—not be sinless, but sin less, because you're now beginning to choose to have Christ live in you. So the slave was crucified, not the master. The master's still around, and we're going to see in a few moments what the master's doing. But the the fact of the matter is that. The, the slave died, the master's still around, but now that master no longer has dominion over us. We're free. Is this making sense so far? It still bothers me that it says done away with. It says done away with, yeah. So that
1: makes it sound like it shouldn't be in the diagram.
0: That's right. And that's why I think what happened is that the New American Standard and the King James thought body of sin was old self. But I think the NIV, who had not done away with, they had rendered powerless. Now here's why I think rendered powerless is a better translation. If you ever do word studies... Um, one of the, the great ways to figure out word studies is to figure out how um, that word has been used in other parts of scriptures. Does that make sense? So kind of see what was the phraseology, what was the intent, and what were they trying to mean. That gives us some insight in terms of how this word was used. Now, if you want to compare this word that Paul's used here in Romans six six, would you compare what would be more powerful or more meaningful? Where Peter used the word, or where Paul used the word? Elsewhere. It would be Paul, right? Because it's his words, right? So it would give us some idea of how how Paul was meaning it. Well, what would be more uh, insightful in terms of how Paul used this word? When he used it when he was writing to the Colossians, or where he used it in writing it in other places in the book of Romans? in the other places of the book of Romans, because it's the same time. So now we're really starting to zero in on how did Paul understand this word? Well, the word here is also used in chapter 7, in verse 2 and in verse 4. Sorry, verse uh, verse 6. So in verse 2, in Romans 7, it says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law. The word released is the same word that's translated... Done away with, okay. And then again in verse six, but now that we've been released from the law, and again that word "released" is the same word that's done away with. Now think about it: is when he's talking about release from the law or release from marriage? You know, specific, specifically with the law, was the law destroyed? No, was the law done away with? What did Jesus say about the law? He would plan it on our own. That it, it's not going anywhere, right? In this age or the one to come, and we are in the one to come. So the law isn't being done away with, it's not being destroyed. Instead, the power that law has over us has been rendered powerless. It no longer has dominion over us. And so, this is why I think the NIV, again, shocker, but the NIV had the best translation of verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, the one that we've been freed from, might be rendered powerless. Why? So that we'd no longer be its slave. But if you think body of sin is the old man, well then, destroyed would make sense. Because the old man wasn't rendered powerless. That would imply he's still hanging around. And so I think the newer version of the NIV, along with the King James and the American Standard, they thought body of sin was old man. I think Paul, and it doesn't matter which one you come up with, because I think both end up in the same place, but I think a more accurate translation is to say that the old self is the old man, or sorry, body of sin is the indwelling sin, old self is old man, the old man died so that the master sin would now have no more control, no more dominion, would be powerless over you and I. And that seems to follow the flow of the verse. Knowing you died, so that your old master would lose his power, so you would no longer be its slave, because anyone who's died is freed. It makes a lot more sense in the relationship to verse 11. Yeah. That's right. So... We've been freed. Not again, not that we never sin, but we've been freed from the dominion and the power that sin had over us. So where's this whole part about the living by in the flesh and then not? <laughs> is that is that part of this indwelling sin thing? Like or is that still part of it? I, kind of... I got another diagram coming up that might might answer that. So Will defer. But it's coming tonight, so if I don't answer by the end of night, you can ask again. Because that is a good question. Any other questions?
1: Is it too simplified to say that when Jesus died, my own sinful nature died, and when he rose again, I, get, I was given
0: mm-hmm. yeah, the nature? Uh, yeah, the word nature gets confusing to people. Um, and thanks to the NIV people again, um, because they've, they've added this idea of sinful nature. And, and, and really, the word nature only appears, I think, two times in the New Testament. Once in Ephesians uh, 2 and verse 3, and then once in First Peter 1 and 4. And, um, and, but in the NIV Bible, the word sinful nature appears over and over again because of how they translated the word flesh. They didn't leave it as flesh. They, they interpreted it to be the sinful nature, which isn't an accurate translation. Um, so you're correct in saying that the old sinful nature, which is the old man, was crucified in order that I could receive a new nature, which is holy and righteous. That's, that's accurate. I just think it gets confusing to people because of what unfortunately NIV has done with the sinful nature. But that is true. That You're right. The old nature is gone because he died. And now we have a new nature that's, oh, by the way, in the likeness of his resurrection. Remember we, we saw Ephesians 4.24 last night? That, you know, this new self, which has been created in the likeness of God, in his holiness, and in his righteousness, in his truth. That's the new you. That's the abundance of the gift of righteousness that we have. And, and so you're right, we do have a new nature now.